What I see with a lot of entrepreneurs is they want to go into stores way too fast before they have the consumer following. And so you're so excited. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm on a thousand store shelves, but nobody knows who you are and nobody's buying you. And so as quickly as you got on, you're going to get off. To me, when I talk to somebody about their resume, I want to know what they did and what was different. Not so much that they were at Google or Facebook or someplace that looks so amazing on a resume. It's not where you've been, it's what you've done. The thing that's really shifted in my 35 years in the business world is from results being job one to realizing that it's the people that get the results. And if you are empathetic and care about the people that work with you, the results will come. And I didn't have that perspective when I started my career. This is the Proco 360 podcast with stories and lessons from Colorado's world-class entrepreneurs. I'm Dave Tabor. My guests and my listeners love it here. We crave knowing more about Colorado's unique and amazing successful businesses. Thanks to Colorado listeners, and I appreciate those outside of Colorado too. Proco 360 is Westward Reader's best Denver podcast and a top 15 Colorado podcast on Feedspot. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Jane Strode-Miller, CEO of Lily's Sweets. I've known Jane for several years. We first met when she was running Rudy's Bakery. Uh, I know her as an accomplished leader, mentor, and author. We'll be talking about starting a food business, about differentiating in the marketplace, about turning a passion into a business, scaling a business, and lots more. Jane, thanks for joining me via Zoom as a guest on Proco 360. Hey, Dave, it is so great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. And it's been a few years since we've had a chance to uh, talk. And I can't wait to tell you a little bit about Lily's and what's happening in the world of chocolate. That's great. Um, We will do that. And let's start actually with a bit of the backstory of Lily's Sweets. Catch us up. Yeah, so Lily's uh, was uh, founded in 2012 by an amazing entrepreneur named Cynthia Tice, who's based in Philadelphia. And Cynthia was a longtime natural foods uh, person, had a natural food store in Philadelphia, and is a chocoholic, but actually hates sugar. And so it was her mission to create a product that she could bring to the world that would have uh, low sugar and be great tasting. So she went national with Whole Foods in 2012. The business grew and grew and grew. And then it skyrocketed and she took an investment partner uh, in a company called VMG based out of San Francisco. They knew me well uh, from being on the board of Justin's for a number of years. And when they had the opportunity to invest with Cynthia, they asked if I would step in as CEO. So that dials the clock to 2018. And I've been CEO for two years. That's a pretty good and concise background. I want to ask you too about this notion of switching. Like she's in Whole Foods. The product is based on no sugar or low sugar through Stevia. And so is there a whole sort of backdrop of is it good? Is it not good for you? Is it healthy? Is it not healthy? Is that Does that play into this at all? You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of um, misconceptions that things that don't have sugar uh, can't taste good. That's probably the biggest one that people have. We've done a lot of research and people are really addicted to sugar and they want to have everything that has sugar in it taste good. And so there is this really this this strong preconceived notion that if you don't have sugar, it's not going to taste good. In the case of stevia, stevia had sort of a long industry reputation as being really bitter. 
and that if you had stevia in drinks or something, it wasn't going to taste good. And so you had kind of the double whammy of sugar means, no sugar means it's not going to taste good. Stevia means it's not going to taste good. And uh, uh, as you know, because you've tried the products, uh, Cynthia was really able to crack the code on that. So there was never an issue about health because our first customer was Whole Foods. and They have mm-hmm. the, the most stringent standards for the products that they bring in. Yes, I have, by the way, listeners, sorry, you don't get to participate in this, but Jane sent me a big box of products so that I could make sure I understood exactly what I was getting into. And uh, it's been fun digging into it. So, uh, and, and, and also one last question, sort of setting the stage, you mentioned Whole Foods, um, you're nationally distributed through retailers, you also sell direct to consumer. So what's the mix look like for Lily's? Oh, gosh. Well, it's really changed pretty dramatically in the last two months, I have to say. We had a very, very small e-commerce business, uh, which was uh, is direct-to-consumer. And in the last couple of months, it's grown just uh, exponentially. So I would say it was a rounding error three months mm-hmm. ago. And today, it's maybe 5% of the business, which you know is, is a lot to go from rounding error to 5%. Sure. And, and margins are better when you're selling direct-to-consumer anyway. But the, uh, you know, I suppose this whole shop at home through COVID has changed a lot of companies' models. Yeah, I think on a number of fronts, not just direct to consumer, but also how we talk to consumers, because now people are ordering for pickup, they're ordering for delivery through uh, companies like Instacart, and they're doing a lot of their shopping lists in advance. And so the amount of work that's happening online before people go into grocery Mm. stores is changed Mm. dramatically. So our use of digital coupons, really doing very customer-specific marketing has increased... um, dramatically in the last three months. Wow. That's this. Okay. This wasn't on the outline at all, but this is where we're going because it's interesting. So you've really had to, based on people shopping before, I mean, if they're walking into a store and shopping, they can see your beautiful packaging. We're going to talk some about that, but you, then you were appealing to them as they walked by. Now you're trying to appeal to them before they fill their cart. That's a different model, isn't it? It definitely is. And to be able to pivot quickly on that, where consumers, buying behaviors just changed overnight. Uh, and to be able to, you know, change all your tactics to go from, we had very high in-store, you know, trying to make sure we had displays and a lot of presence in-store. And now we really need to make sure that we're attracting that consumer before they go into the store yeah. so they can make the decision because they're in a hurry. They're not loitering and walking down every aisle. They got a list and we need to be on that mm-hmm. list. That's so interesting. And I noticed on your website that, you know, we're, where I think a lot of cute brands, I don't know if cute's the right word, niche brands um, are okay with sort of a homegrown feel around the packaging, around everything. It's almost like, and I think of like uh, the famous Bobo's uh, bars that are come yeah. out of Boulder uh, that Barrel started. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, you know, that's like a little scribbled drawing cartoon and that has stuck as the brand. And Lily's has gone the exact opposite to me, it seems. I mean, you've got a beautiful logo, really crisp and defined art. And on your website, the photographs of your product and of recipes are fantastic, right? So how did you decide to go that route versus the, the cute homegrown route? Huh, that's such a great question. I've never been asked that before. I, you know, I'd say uh, Cynthia's original packaging was really beautiful, uh, but it was very intricate um, designs, very much kind of, we describe it as almost like a Narnia kind of background, which is a little dark, and, but really, but really beautiful. When I came into the business and working with my head of marketing, Sarah Mice, 
we really felt that it was great for a candy bar business, but it didn't allow us to extend to all mm. the products that we thought that Lily's could represent in this sort of low sugar arena. So we worked with a company called Bex Brands in San Diego to develop what we call a visual identity platform that really allowed us to expand across categories and across product lines mm. and to be that kind of clean and crisp and really appetizing as opposed to a little bit more homegrown. I think we had early visions that the roots of lilies in Philadelphia were not going to be what we were going to carry forward with consumers, that yeah. it was much more about the product and not the place. And even Cynthia as a founder, uh, although she's involved on the board and is involved in all of our innovation and she's an, an amazing muse, we don't feel like her story is the thing that we want to be forward with, with consumers, uh, a little bit different than Bobo's. Yeah. Well, and because it sounds like you want to build a, a bigger brand and not necessarily, you want to build it around product and not around a particular person or a particular person's story. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. I think that, uh, and again, Cynthia was a hundred percent behind this. Otherwise she might've named the product Cynthia versus Lily's, <laughs> you know, that, that she was not going to be the face of the brand, that the brand was going to, was going to speak for itself. Yeah. This is Proco 360, named Best Denver Podcast, three years running. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and this is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. I'm speaking with Jane Strode Miller of Lily's Suites. Thanks to our sponsors, Community Banks of Colorado, the law firm of Holland and Hart, Kinsley Meetings, MicroStar Keg Logistics, and Total Coaching Systems. These great companies support Colorado business and entrepreneurs, and they support this show. Thanks, too, to the Colorado Chamber of Commerce for support for me and Proco 360. So I'm going to back back up to what I had originally had sort of as the <laughs> sequence, but you got us starting around marketing, and I, I thought that was fun, and we'll come back to some of that. But backing up, you know, this, it seems like it went really quickly, Jane, from being sort of a cute founder's pet project to search for a, a chocolate that didn't use a lot of sugar. Did By the way, did Cynthia want to create a company or was she just looking to kind of create something for herself? No, she definitely wanted to create a company. I mean, she really had a vision for this. And and again, she's she's so amazing because it wasn't like something she was doing kind of as a hobby. I mean, she really believed that this could be something that was big. And you know, we were really first to market with the natural low sugar products. So she was ahead of her time. In fact, what's so interesting, Dave, is that when the business really started to explode was when the keto trend really took off, which was about three years ago. And she was already five years into it. Mm. So, I mean, it's this amazing thing of actually having an idea that's ahead of its time, which seems so hard to imagine anymore because it feels like every idea is already out there, right? Yeah, but she yeah. really had an idea that was ahead of her time. That's um, that's kind of interesting because it's it's harder, isn't it? To um, to be ahead of your time a lot harder. I mean, you it, it sounds like she hit she hit stride just about the time when she wasn't ahead of time, but she was right. Like she caught the wave, essentially. She definitely, she did. She definitely caught the wave. And I think, you know, we are so blessed as a company because she caught the wave and then the wave became bigger. You know, we did a huge piece of research last summer that showed that, uh, eight out of 10 consumers want to cut back on sugar. And this isn't somebody who shops at Whole Foods. This is not somebody yeah. who's highly educated. The mainstream consumer eight out of 10 people want to cut back on sugar. And so it's, it's a big macro trend, not a niche item, but it's something that, that we yeah. think is actually going to be a bigger wave even going forward. 
So let me let me add a little cynicism to your comment, which is eight out of ten people want to cut back on sugar. Yeah, eight out of ten people want to lose weight. Eight out of ten people want to quit. Who right. are smoking? Want to quit? Smoking. I mean, how do you wrap your arms around the true metrics? Just because people say they want something, if you were to say how many people actually intend to do something around sugar, what number is that? So that's a great question because we actually have the answer to that. So <laughs> eight out of ten want to cut back on sugar only one out of three actually do it. Yeah, but that's still a huge number. It's big. It's big. Yeah. But it, and it's interesting because people, and this, this is, this is not like I'm thinking I'm going to do it. It's actually people that can tell you what they did to cut back on sugar. So it really is, um, it's really happened. And we've actually done uh, kind of a screen of recent research during COVID. And what's interesting is 40% of people are eating more chocolate. Um, and that group of people are saying that they want to even be more healthy when we come out of the pandemic, like 60% of people. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's like even a thing right now where you kind of think, oh my gosh, we're all at home. So we're just, we're going to eat as much sugar as we can. And we're not going to like watch our diets. But I think we're really actually seeing with our business that, that there are a number of people that are very focused on their health and making sure that they are still avoiding sugar. It's nice to be able to facilitate that. I'm sure. Um, so, so it's interesting. The founder of Cynthia wanted to actually start a business. Did she have her arms around like what she wanted it to be? Did she know how big she wanted it to be? Or did she have an idea of selling, you know, massive investment to an outside company? Any of that? You know, I, I can't answer all of that. What I'd say is, is that she had a vision, uh, and, early on saw success. And like every entrepreneur you've probably had on this show, she is the hardest working, did whatever it took to really make her dream come true. In fact, you know, when I took over as CEO two years ago, she had a business, uh, a, a relatively large business, and she had three employees. Wow. And two of them were her kids. Uh, that are both in their 20s. I mean, so she was scrappy like every entrepreneur. She did every job like every entrepreneur. In fact, um, you know, I've hired 40 people in two years, um, most of them based her in Colorado. And probably about a year ago, we were having dinner just one-to-one. And she looked across the table at me and she said, you know, I have to ask you, what is it that you do? <laughs> and the question was born of the fact that she did it all. And all of a sudden now I have like all of these people and she was really like, I'm yeah. Hmm. <laughs> what is it that you do? <laughs> that's amazing. That's a great story too. Uh, you know, it's one thing I, as I was researching for this interview, I thought this is different because most specialty really niche based food products start with an entrepreneur who is just sort of scrappy as you described. And, trying to see where it goes. You said you've been on the board of Justin's Nut Butter. And I know um, I know that Justin Gold, who founded that, started out like at farmer's markets, you know, selling the stuff one jar at a time. And, and I also mentioned earlier, um, Beryl Stafford from Bobo's. And she started, you know, she started making them in her home kitchen, you know. So as, as listeners are considering, you know, do they want to turn their own home food product into a business. I mean, it's just not that easy. No, Dave, it's not easy at all. In fact, a lot of the mentoring that I do is with young entrepreneurs. And what I will tell you is everybody has an idea. There is not a person that is listening that doesn't have an idea of a food product that they would love to introduce to the world. 
I think the key thing is, is really surrounding yourself with some advisors that can help you understand what it takes to make it happen, the amount of money that it takes, the amount of time, how hard it is to get on store shelves. And actually the harder thing than getting on store shelves is staying on store shelves because, you know, buyers love innovation. They may love the next lilies, but if consumers are not buying the product, you're not going to have any success. So it is really, really hard and super exceptional to have a Justin's, have a Bobo's, have a Lily's be so successful. Yeah. And, and um, I want to, I guess I don't want to dodge that yet because it seems like you said staying on shelves and, and as new products come out, I mean, there's constant interest in new products, new products. What's Lily's doing to, aside from expand its product line, if I buy, you know, this salted, I'm looking at this one, salted extra dark chocolate bar today, um, what's to make me want to buy yours again and again and again versus the next thing that has an interesting package? So what's really unique about Lilies is that there are very few brands that have low sugar and taste good. Mm. Uh, in fact, uh, we're we're kind of alone in that at this point in time. Although we're you know we're anticipating there'll be more competition because our business is growing so rapidly. Sure. So when we actually did a study last summer, the sugar things I already mentioned, we also know that of every specialty chocolate brand, and that would include like Lindt and Ghirardelli and Justin's, etc., we have the highest repeat rate. So Mm. when people actually buy our product, they're going to buy it again and um, at a much higher rate than other products. So our problem is not getting thinking that people are not going to buy it again. Our problem is getting people to try it to begin with because Mm. they don't think things with stevia can taste good and you only want to have chocolate that tastes good. So our biggest challenge is getting over that trial barrier. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of confidence once people try it, that they'll buy it again. Well, and I see on your website, I mentioned before the the recipes, amazing recipes and so forth. Is that are those designed to to help people f- continue to stay engaged with your product? They might have tried a chocolate bar once, but now if they see recipes on your website, they figure they can bake this, they can make that. Uh, it, it seems to me that that might be a natural way to keep them engaged with your brand. Well, you know, what we know about people that eat chocolate is they don't just eat one thing like a chocolate bar. They buy yeah. everything else that might yeah. have chocolate in it. So the recipes kind of help promote that. And yeah. Honestly, Dave, you know, during the last three months, uh, this is the latest information I've seen, baking chips, of which we have a line of them, is the fastest growing category in the whole grocery store. Wow. And it's crazy. I mean, people are baking like never before. And um, so the recipes actually help because, you know, there's only so many times you can make the, you know, your grandma's banana bread with chocolate chips. You want to have a couple of other things that you want to throw in the mix. Cool. Well, listeners, another reminder, this is Proco 360. I'm your host, Dave Tabor, and this is the show featuring entrepreneurs who could be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. I'm speaking with Jane Strode Miller of Lily's Suites. Go to Proco360.com to subscribe to the newsletter, read my blog, and catch the books I'm listening to on Audible. And please don't forget to rate Proco360 in your app when you finish this episode. It helps a ton. So, um, You'd never been in the chocolate business before. You had been in the food business and lots of other things, Jane. What was your top priority when you came to Lily's? I mean, it was already an established business. Gosh, that's such a great question, Dave. I mean, I think there were a number of things that we wanted to do. Uh, One was to build our distribution footprint. 
that we were in about 20,000 points of distribution two years ago. And that point of distribution for your listeners is uh, imagine a Sprout store times the number of SKUs that are in that store. So one Sprout store with 10 of our items is 10 points of distribution. So we were in 20,000 two years ago. By the end of this year, we'll be at 200,000. So the idea that you can get our product at Whole Foods, our original customer, and at Sprouts, a great customer for ours. Now you can go into Target here locally. You can get it at King Supers and of course, Natural Grocers and Alfalfas and kind of across, across the board. So the number one was to sort of build the distribution base. The second thing was really to be a leader in innovation with us knowing that people were not just eating chocolate bars, we wanted to really rapidly start to introduce new products so people could have the Lily's experience across a number of uh, product platforms. And so we originally came out with chocolate covered nuts and then peanut butter cups and then chocolate covered caramels and then chocolate covered popcorn. Uh, just recently we've introduced a chocolate chip cookie uh, which allows us to kind of expand the business even further. So I would say that the initial ones were really all about uh, distribution, distribution. Um, and then really trying to build household yeah. penetration with innovation. So here's a curiosity that I have, and I've raised it with sporting goods manufacturers, um, interviewed the CEO of BOA and um, Sierra Designs and some others. And I always wonder about like what happens to a brand when it starts in Whole Foods and then it goes to Target? or goes to, you know, uh, Walmart, you know, does that, how do you consider placement relative to what your customers value when it comes to brand and how it makes them feel about themselves? So we actually do a lot of thoughtful thinking about price points and the items that we're going to introduce as we expand outside of a, a major customer like Whole Foods. And I think that it's always been a tricky for a brand that starts in the, what's called the natural channel, which would be Whole Foods and Sprouts and natural grocers to start to expand more broadly. And I'll just give you one tactic that we did with Walmart uh, so that there wouldn't be really a head-to-head comparison. We actually uh, went into Walmart last summer with three of our baking chip items. And instead of doing a lay down pouch like a Nestle's Toll House, which most of us buy baking chips like that, we did a stand up pouch that has a resealable um, top on it. And we only did that for Walmart and we did a very exclusive size for them. So that way you wouldn't, uh, you could actually get something different at Walmart Mm -hmm. than you would get at Whole Foods. And it's been usually successful and has allowed us to have actually a little bit lower price point that really appeals to that uh, more mainstream consumer that's shopping at Walmart. Yeah. So does it affect your how your customer feels about the brand if they see it in Whole Foods and then they're in Target and they see it in Target? Those are different sort of people shop there for different emotional feelings. And does that change how your customers or do you, is that a concern that it changes how your customers feel about your brand? I don't think so. You know, I think there might be the, you know, the conception that, uh, or the preconception, I guess, that that I could buy it in Whole Foods and now that it's in Walmart, oh my gosh, is it not as good of a product or something? And that, you know, that really doesn't exist in the food business today. I mean, I think that uh, everybody shops everywhere. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the ubiquitous nature of being able to find a brand that, hey, yeah. I am shopping in Target and I am shopping in Walmart and I am shopping in Whole Foods and I can find it everywhere doesn't make the brand seem less valuable. I think it makes it feel more accessible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what we want to do is we are really committed to providing low sugar products uh, to the mainstream consumer. And the more places that you can find it, the more ac- accessible it is, yeah. uh, the better chance you're going to get people to try it. That's great. What are, <laughs> what are your growth plans for, for Lilies? So we have pretty aggressive growth plans because we feel like we are on the tip of this wave that you mentioned before. And it's kind of like if you are on the, on the wave, you need to take advantage of it while you're there. So which is why we've been trying to build distribution so quickly, why we've been innovating so rapidly. You know, I, I can't actually sh- share all the numbers, Dave, but I would say two years ago when we took over the business uh, and partnered with Cynthia to really grow it, in the, in the, by the end of this year, the business will be five times the size it was uh, two years ago. And it was, as I said, a business uh, of, of pretty significant scale at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, uh, so our, our growth has been uh, kind of, you know, pretty much doubling every year plus, mm-hmm. and that would be yeah. our, our plan to continue. That's cool. And I would think that you'll have um, wrapping up on this conversation about growth, I would think, you know, you have a nice impact or potential impact on, on the health of the people who buy it. You know, we hope so. I mean, it, it, you know, maybe one great example is our baking chips, which is if you're making a batch of cookies and the only thing you change out, so you still have brown sugar, you still have cane sugar, you have, you know, everything else is exactly the same and you only change out our baking chips, uh, replace Nestle's Toll House with Lily's, you save over a hundred grams of sugar in a batch of cookies. Wow. And so if you just sort of think about like little changes that can make big longer term changes, Mm -hmm. that's maybe the best example that I have. Well, that's great. Now I'm going to switch to some random stuff because your background, well, random might describe it, but it's. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) I resemble that remark. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of different things. And you've led, you know, you've had an upward trajectory in growth. And um, so a few questions for you. One is around mentoring, because you do a lot of mentoring. And on your Jane Knows website, uh, which is really about um, careers for millennials, uh, career development, career path, one of the blog posts you said is, you said any job is a good job. And, and when I read that, I thought, I, I thought, is that true? I mean, does it look good to have Starbucks or Home Depot on your finance resume, for example? I mean, what's your take on that phrase? So the blog, Any Job is a Good Job, came up as a result of, of being in this pandemic where so yeah. many people were getting laid off. And if people with experience were getting laid off, what was going to happen to the young people that were trying to get jobs to begin with? Mm -hmm. And I do believe any job is a good job because when I look at a resume, I honestly don't care where you've worked. I want to hear what you did where you worked. So to your point about Starbucks, it's not about being a barista at Starbucks. It's about having great customer service. It's about dealing with irate people that are coming in that have no patience and that treat you like nothing because you're an hourly worker. 
And to me, when I talk to somebody about their resume, I want to know what they did and what was different. Not so much that they were at Google or Facebook or someplace that looks so amazing on a resume. It's not where you've been. It's what you've done with what you've been, you know, where where you've been. And so any job is a good job really is in these economic times. Do something that allows you to talk about what you've done, even if it's volunteer work, as opposed to sort of feeling like you have to have an amazing job. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with that philosophy. And I think it's a great one. I think it challenges uh, bosses, job interviewers, essentially to, to dig deep and ask interesting questions um, that are thoughtful. You know, what, what made you stand out as a Starbucks person? What was a more challenging thing you managed as a Starbucks employee or at Home Depot? And yeah, it makes sense. And so you use that at Lily's, don't you? Yeah, you know, I mean, we talk a lot about it, actually, I think, um, in terms of, uh, you know, what what responsibilities we all have, what we need to do in the company. I mean, we're really blessed because our business is quite strong. And so, you know, I've done a lot of communication, communicating with our team over the last couple of months, how people's jobs are secure and mm-hmm. uh, that they're valued and trying to really even develop more community. But yeah, I think it's, it's a good theme here. I think it's even a bigger theme with the work that I do with uh, the University of Colorado Leeds School and also Watson Institute, uh, which is uh, an, an accelerator for entrepreneurs. Hmm. Um, you've done a lot of sales too. You did a lot of sales early in your career. Um, what, you know, I, I, I've heard of a lot of people graduating, a lot of young young professionals, even entrepreneurs that say they don't really like sales. So what's your take on how sales has impacted your career and your trajectory? That's so funny you asked that because I was recently talking to a young graduate and uh, who wanted to go into marketing. And she was saying that the only opportunities were sales and how, yeah. how was that going to look on her resume? Like sales, like, hmm. Can anybody do sales, you know, and is it like a lower class job? No way. I mean, I think like selling is, is such an important skill that you use, whether you're selling a product, you're selling a manager, you're selling to get money. Like it is, it is such an important skill set um, that I don't even think about what the product is you're selling. I just think the, the building the skills behind, uh, behind selling is great. I mean, I have known young people that have taken cold calling jobs and I tell you what, if you can cold call, Dave, you can do anything for me because yep. cold calling takes like nerves of steel. I want to hire that kid that was selling Cutco knives, not just for a month, but for more than one summer. That kid, <laughs> I want that kid, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. right. As someone who said, get someone saying no all the time too, right? But you still go, go back in. It's like you're in the ring and you're just getting like punched and you just keep going back in there like, I'm going to win this thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I'm, yeah, those, they're, they're not enough of those uh, young people out there. And I, I just was talking with one recently who was saying, yeah, you know, I, I don't know how to tell people this, but I like sales. I'm like, tell them, right. you know, <laughs> tell them that's awesome. Um, so when you talk with um, startup entrepreneurs, what are, what are a couple of points you're most passionate about? Oh gosh, a couple things. Uh, the first one is is surrounding yourself with people who can give you good advice, and not feeling like you have to have all the answers. Uh, because again, as I said earlier, everybody has a great idea and they're so passionate about it 
But to get it from a passion project to something that's successful in store really, really takes uh, a lot of um, a lot of good people around you, and not necessarily employees, but just people yeah. you trust. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'd say is don't expand too quickly. You know, I think it is. Uh, it's so risky because we all get enamored by how many stores we can get into, how many points of distribution, like I mentioned that we've done with Lilies. Mm-hmm. But with Lilies, it wasn't so risky because we had a really strong business and it was a time to launch it. What I see with a lot of entrepreneurs is they want to go into stores way too fast before they had the consumer following. And so you're so excited. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm on a thousand store shelves, but nobody knows who you are and nobody's buying you. And so as quickly as you got on, you're going to get off. So those are probably be the two, the two biggest pieces of advice. Cool. And I was looking at your background too. um, And you follow a lot of interesting people from Jack Welch to Tony Robbins, Damon John, Bobby Brown. I mean, what makes somebody, you know, a person, someone you want to follow? Oh gosh, that's such a, that's such a good question. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of particular about it, I would yeah. say, in terms of who I follow. And I think it's um, people that challenge, uh, challenge me, I think, in my thinking that are uh, inspiring. I would say intellectual curiosity is the thing that I'm most interested in. And I think all of the people that you named to me really represent in their own fields, someone who has tried to push the limits and mm-hmm. maybe tried to even reinvent what that particular industry is like. And, yeah. and that to me is interesting. Yeah. So, you know, you've, your, your things you admire, things that are interesting change over time. So how have the traits you admire changed like over through the course of your career? Oh, gosh. You know, it's so funny because I think, uh, you know, I think at where I'm at in my career and my, you know, sort of life is that I have much more of an appreciation for empathy and understanding people. And I think when I was earlier in my career, uh, you know, I'm a self-proclaimed or was a self-proclaimed workaholic. And it was really more about the results. And I think, Dave, the thing that's really shifted in my 35 years in the business world is from results being job one to realizing that it's the people that get the results. And if you are empathetic and care about the people that work with you, the results will come. And I didn't have that perspective when I started my career. Yeah. Well, that seems like a neat note to end on. So let's do it. Let's wrap up. <laughs> I'm your host, Dave Tabor. And today on Proco 360, you've been listening to my conversation with Jane Strode Miller of Lily's Sweets. Jane, thanks. This is a great conversation. Dave, this is so much fun. I can't believe it's over already. I wish I had an extended version of this. <laughs> well, we could. We could extend it if you tell me about, um, tell the listeners about what you're doing with, with rescue horses. Oh, yeah, I kind of got uh, into horses a little bit late in my uh, in my career. It was always a bucket list. And I'm not a very good rider, but I'm a really good feeder and <laughs> lover of horses. And so I have um, four rescue horses that just get to spend their time at my house eating grass and uh, snuggling up with me and uh, creating a whole lot of manure for me to get my, uh, my daily <laughs> exercise. <laughs> That's cool. 
So more shoveling than writing, it sounds like. A lot more shoveling than writing. <laughs> cool. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining me on Proco 360, where we say live, work, love Colorado, because you and I and my guests can be successful anywhere and choose Colorado. You make the show successful by subscribing to the Proco 360 podcast and submitting a review. Thanks again to show sponsors, Community Banks of Colorado, Holland and Hart, Kinsley Meetings, MicroStar Keg Logistics, Total Coaching Systems, and the Colorado Chamber of Commerce. That's the show. Live, work, love Colorado. Thank you.